All right, school is in session. So take your seats and turn up the volume. volume. It's time for the smartest fishing show on the internet. This is the show that dives into everything fishing from tactics and gear to policy and product. Here he is, the fishing professor, Professor Sid Dobrin. So stick around, you might learn something. What a day for a daydream. What a day for a daydreaming boy. And I am lost in a daydream, dreaming about my bundle of joy. And even if time ain't really on my side, it's one of those days for taking the boat offshore. I'm blowing the day to take an offshore trip. Okay, that rewrite ain't working. And I really owe John Sebastian and the Loving Spoonful a bit more respect than that. So we'll let that go. And instead, we'll say, welcome to the Inventive Fishing Fishing Professor Rodcast. I am Sid Durbin, the Fishing Professor. And as always, we have got a great episode of the Rodcast today because why in the world would I say that we've got a mediocre episode, especially when we have Dave Boltice, the president of Pure Fishing North America, in the Inshore Offshore Digital Studio. We are certainly going to have a great conversation with him. Pure Fishing is the leading global provider of fishing tackle that includes companies like Abu Garcia, Berkeley, Fenor, Johnson, Mitchell, Penn, Shakespeare, Spiderwire, Stren, Ugly Stick, and a bunch of other iconic companies. So we're going to have a great conversation about fishing tackle and pure fishing with Mr. Baltice. I will also be pouring from a bottle of Penhook Bohemian Bourbon High Proof, and I'll be counting down my top 10 grouper lures. That's right. We're going to be digging. And hey, if you're digging the Rodcast, <laughs> be sure to subscribe by clicking that subscribe button on whatever platform you're using to access the Rodcast, and be sure to share the Rodcast with all of your daydreaming buddies. You know, Every now and then on the Rodcast, I like to share an interesting fact or a provocative lie about fishing and fish. And I recently came across a tidbit that I find interesting that I thought I'd share with you. As you probably know, fishing for catfish is a pretty popular type of fishing across the U.S. And certainly fried catfish and the fish fry are an incredibly entrenched part of American culture. And let me tell you, there ain't nothing better than a plate of fried catfish with cheese grits and slaw on the side. Mm, boy, I could eat that right now. But I learned recently that catfish, and here we're talking freshwater catfish like flatheads, blues, and channel cats, they have some of the most sensitive senses of taste of any fish out there. In fact, catfish have about 20,000 taste buds in their mouths. The average person, by the way, has about 10,000 taste buds in their mouths. But here's the really interesting part. In addition to the 20,000 taste buds in their mouths, catfish have over 175,000 taste buds spread all over their bodies. That means, first and most obviously, that catfish have way better taste than you, and I mean that in both ways, and that they taste anything that comes in contact with their skin. That means that every time you grab a catfish to remove a hook and throw it in the cooler, that fish is tasting you. And I'd bet a dime to a dollar that that fish is thinking, damn, I bet that dude would taste good fried in cornmeal and served with cheese grits and slaw. We're getting deep here on the Rodcast, so let's get casting. All right. I am really honored to have Dave Boltice in the Inshore Offshore Digital Studio today. Mr. Boltice was named president of Pure Fishing North America in 2019. Pure Fishing, which was founded back in 1937, is a global provider of fishing tackle, lures, rods, and reels with a portfolio of brands that includes Abu Garcia, Berkeley, Fenwick, Fenor, Hardy, Johnson, Mitchell, Penn, Fluger, Shakespeare, Spiderwire, Stren, Ugly Stick, and Van Stahl. That is to say, Pure Fishing is a conglomerate of some of the most iconic brands in fishing and is generally known as the world's largest fishing tackle company. Now, before joining Pure Fishing, Dave Boltice was vice president of sales for Costa Sunglasses, where he worked for 16 years developing Costa into a global leader in eyewear and really developing Costa as the premier eyewear company for anglers and other water enthusiasts. Now, before joining Costa Del Mar, 
Bullseye served as director of sales for companies like Fenor Fishing Tackle. He has also been one of the most active voices in advocacy for anglers. He has served on the board of directors for Fish America and served for eight years on the board of directors for the American Sport Fishing Association, where he also served as chairman of the board and is currently chair of the Government Affairs Committee. Now, in 2018, the American Sport Fishing Association honored Baltice with its most prestigious award, the Lifetime Achievement Award, for his commitment to recreational fishing in the sport fishing industry. I was fortunate to have been there when ASA President Glenn Hughes and ASA Chairman of the Board Chris Megan presented Mr. Baltice with the award in what was one of the most memorable and emotional award ceremonies I have attended. So to really oversimplify it, Dave Baltice is one of those industry insiders who not only knows the ins and outs of the recreational fishing industry, but he's one of those guys who genuinely cares about fishing, about anglers, and about the future of fishing in the United States. Dave, I can't thank you enough for being on the Rodcast. Thanks for being here. Super glad to be here with you. Uh, thank you for the great introduction, but uh, you know, I'm very fortunate that I fell in love with fishing when I was about four years old and managed to find a way to make a career and where and let my passion intersect with my career ambition. So I've been very blessed and very fortunate and I'm happy to be sitting here with you today. Thanks, Dave. So that's usually where we like to start is to get a little bit of that origin story. So, you know, you've been involved with the recreational fishing industry since you were in high school. And I'd like to hear a little bit more about how you transferred that lifelong passion into involvement in the industry. Well, briefly, uh, you know, I, I think like many people, you know, I, I kind of I fell into an opportunity, discovered it and developed a passion for it. I worked in high school at a, at a large retail sporting goods store and their fishing tackle departments in the summer and ironically in their ski departments in the winter. Uh, but you know, spent uh, a lot of time working uh, in selling fishing tackle, got to learn a little bit about the industry, went to college actually to study at, at Michigan State to study pre-law, ended up leaving school to go back and work for a while to make some more money. And before I went back, and I was fortunate enough to uh, go back to work and manage the sporting goods store. And I met a sales rep representative agency. They offered me a job as a sales rep selling fishing tackle and sporting goods as a road salesman. Uh, so at a very young age, I got immersed in the world of the fishing tackle industry, representing uh, some high profile manufacturers. Lived in Chicago for 12 years, representing companies such as Mann's, Hummingbird, Bagley Bates, Plano, Shimano, other uh, industry leading brands. From there, I moved to Florida. I started my own agency as a sales representative agency, not selling fishing tackle initially, but I was drawn back into the business. And from there, I actually left the representative industry, uh, went to Finor as director of sales. And from there, I was recruited to go to Costa. So, you know, it's been a long journey, but I've managed to work with some really wonderful and powerful brands. I've learned a lot and I've had the benefit also of meeting some, you know, people that were not only industry leaders, but also mentors of mine who've kind of guided me on my journey where I sit today as the president of Pure Fishing. So I heard you recently on our mutual friend, Mike Leonard's podcast, <laughs> The Politics of Fishing, giving the advice that if you want to get into the recreational fishing industry because you want to fish a lot, that that might not be the best career path. Tell us why that is. I think that like anything else, when you're in the in business, and it's, it's your vocation and it's, you have a company to lead or be a part of that you find that you're constantly faced with making decisions about, am I going fishing or am I working? And I think there's just a misconception that if you work in the fishing tackle industry that you fish a lot. Probably I don't fish any more than an avid recreational angler. I think people think, man, Dave fishes about four or five days a week must be a great job. I wish I fished four or five days a week, but I don't, but it is, it's a place where you, you know, anytime you can make a living at something that you're passionate about, it doesn't feel like work. I think that's one of the benefits, but certainly as we come through this uh, post COVID era into whatever the new normal looks like, I look forward to getting back on, on the water um, more often. That's excellent. I think we're all in that same boat of wanting to be out there more. 
So you brought up uh, the COVID and the post-COVID normal. And a lot of people inside the industry that we've talked with on the Rodcast have talked about how, on the one hand, their businesses have thrived during the pandemic. But on the other hand, the global supply chain difficulties have restricted their abilities to provide product. How has Pure Fishing been balancing that increased demand for tackle and equipment we've seen these last two years with the supply chain issues that emerged during the pandemic? Well, there's there's uh, several different aspects of that that I'll address for you. One is which we make a lot of fishing tackle here. Uh, we don't make everything that we sell uh, is not manufactured in Asia or other countries, although we have production and we make Plano in Plano, Illinois. We produce all our soft plastic baits as well as all of our braided lines and our monofilaments in Spirit Lake, Iowa, in a huge facility there. We have, we do, of course, have the Abu factory in Spengson. We do have Asian manufacturing for rods and reels as well. So we are fortunate that in many instances, we own our own factories, which is a competitive advantage. Also, the fact that we make a lot of products in the United States in certain brands has short, shortened the, uh, the cycle to get products from Asia through the ports and into the hands of, into our DC and ultimately into the hands of retailers and consumers. Uh, and we, I work with some really talented people. We have a whole team that has focused on supply chain in terms of making sure we're getting adequate supplies of raw materials to make our products, as well as focusing on that, what everybody's heard is the difficulties in securing ocean transportation, truck, rail, et cetera. So we've devoted resources to it. Uh, we focused on it. We've tried to make it a uh, something that we do well, and I think we do. But nevertheless, I sit here today and tell you that it takes roughly twice as long to get products to our customers today as it did in 2019. All right. So before we dig into pure fishing specifically, I want to step back to your role with Costa because Costa has a really interesting history. Back to Cross Pens under the director of David Whalen, who purchased Costa Del Mar along with a bunch of other companies. And Costa Del Mar had been a small sunglass company founded by a bunch of anglers with only a small following in the fishing and boating world. But Whalen had been CEO at Ray-Ban, and he also bought Native Sunglasses, which had, been, had a great reputation among mountain sports enthusiasts. And then with you in the vice president of sales position, really turned Costa into the most fishing-focused eyewear company in the world. So tell us a little bit about your journey in that role with this iconic company. Sure. Um, you know, opportunities, you know, are, there's never been quite an opportunity like that. I think that, you know, uh, Dave Whalen was the chairman of the board of, uh, and the, the president of AT Cross. He purchased Costa. He brought in a dynamic leader uh, named Chaz McDonald to be the president. Chaz recruited me from Finor and Chaz built a great team together. I was part of a great team. And I think that the, the market conditions were right. You had some people that were super passionate about not only the Costa brand, but also about fishing and about being successful. And, you know, everything clicked. Uh, we had some tremendous growth, but we focused on the fishing market. People like myself came in that really had the relationships with retailers and within the fishing community to go out and tell our story. And that's really what we did. We were very small, didn't have that huge marketing budget that larger companies have. So we did a tremendous amount of grassroots work. We showed up at boat shows and fishing clubs and tournaments and not only donated product, but more importantly, we talked to the anglers and introduced them to our brand. I think it's, it was a combination of a really talented uh, team of professionals across sales, marketing, production. I think it was uh, the market conditions were really right. And we you know, had a grassroots and a viral strategy at the same time. And then I can say honestly that we did a couple of things that were, we thought outside the box a little bit and did one huge thing that if it hadn't turned out to be successful, probably would have curtailed the growth for five years. And that's, we signed up to be a sponsor of Kenny Chesney's tour, his summer tour. And I think we went out and introduced the brand to an audience that hadn't discovered us yet and that accelerated our growth. Uh, you know, I think we did cool things and we let people discover us. And what timing that was, too, because here Kenny Chesney is making the shift from pure country into the yacht rock scene and really redefining a lot of that kind of music as well, too. 
Um, I also wonder, you know, in that history, given, and we'll talk in a minute about your commitment to conservation, but, you know, Costa's conservation approaches really also benefited Costa as a company, particularly with that market of anglers and, and uh, water enthusiasts. Was that an intentional strategy at the same time? I th- it was a strategy, I, but I'm going to say that I think that it was authentic. I mean, people talk great. Everybody believes in conservation. Everybody believes in clean water. Everybody believes there should be sustainable fish stocks. I mean, people want to do the good, the, the good and the right things. But I don't think we, I think we went out and actually showed up and did it and tried to lead by example as opposed to saying, hey, look at us, look how great we are. I think we took a strategy that we're going to go do things that we think are good for the sport, for the fish, for our ultimate consumers uh, who are fishermen and women. And they, they, we were authentically engaged in conservation across many different fronts. And I think people respected us for that, as opposed to just going out and creating a story that comes out on press releases about what we made a donation. We showed up. And I, I appreciate that authenticity. I think that comes through very clearly, even in the, you know, the campaigns that are still running. All right, let me ask you one last eyewear related question. This year at the Miami Boat Show, Pure Fishing's iconic brand Fenor introduced its first foray into the eyewear market. And I have to say that among the angling media, there was quite a bit of buzz about these new glasses. So I assume that Fenor's move into eyewear is, at least in part, influenced by your experiences at Costa. So could you tell us a little bit about this new market direction for Fenor? Sure. Um, We passionately believe in the Fenor brand. It's a legacy brand the fishing tackle industry. It was started in Miami in 1933. It has a long history of innovation, introducing products that have made fishing better. Uh, Going back to the first multi-speed big game reels, the first fly reels really suitable for saltwater fishing with true drags. Um, The first spinning reels in the Ahab series designed specifically for offshore fishing with braided lines first roller guides built that were commercially sold. So there's a history of innovation that makes fishing better. We've spent a lot of time looking at the eyewear category, focusing on developing some new lens technology, uh, looking at frames and saying, we wanna go back and build eyewear specifically designed for avid anglers, both men and women that provide the ultimate performance. And we're gonna approach it as we're creating equipment In other words, you're not really on the water set for day of fishing without eyewear. We want to build eyewear that when you look through the lenses, you can see the clarity, you can see the quality, you can feel the performance of the lens. And that's what we've done. We'll start delivering these glasses uh, uh, the first week of May. Uh, We're ready to move into a new distribution center here in Florida in about 10 days. And we're we're not trying to be the biggest. We're trying to build really great products for knowledgeable anglers and go back and really service the independent fishing tackle retailer that needs eyewear they can sell at full margin that delivers on the promise of outstanding performance and is focused specifically on the needs and the wants and the desires of the fishing community. Excellent. And I think I'm excited about it. We've put three years into it. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I, I saw a few of them at the Miami Boat Show. Actually, you were standing right there with me when I saw them at the Boat Show, and they look pretty fantastic. So let me use that as a transition to talk about some of the pure fishing brands. And I have to ask a question about Fenor, and forgive me here if I've just missed something, but you know, Fenor always evoked an image of the top of the line, professional grade fishing reels. And a lot of us grew up wishing we could own just one Fenor reel. Van Stahl's got a very similar kind of reputation. And for me, that fantasy always involved what you just mentioned, the Fenor Ahab spinning reels. But I've noticed on the Pure Fishing and Fenor webpages, the spinning reels aren't listed any longer, just the conventional reels. Have I missed something or what happened to the iconic Ahab reels? The Ahab reels were discontinued a long time ago. When when, uh, Fenor was sold to another company back in the uh, early 2000s, that reel today, the drag concept is great. It's too heavy. We looked at should we bring it back and instead we've We're working with our engineers. We're designing 
ground up new reels. We, the Finor Marquesas lever drag reels have a, a cult following, not a big brand, but people that fish them absolutely love them. We'll continue to upgrade and improve those. We're completely redesigning our entire spinning reel offering. You'll see three series of beautiful new uh, high quality, high performance uh, inshore spinning reels at ICAST this year. And then we will follow up shortly behind that with new offshore reels. So we've kept the existing Fenor uh, offshore spinning reels going forward, the larger sizes. We're focused on inshore. And we want to, again, the goal for Fenor is to make it not the biggest company, but you pick it up and you say, wow, it's cool. It's different. It's not, it's probably going to be more expensive than many people want to spend for real. But you know, look at it and say, they haven't missed it. The product feels great, looks great. When you fish it, it's going to perform great. So we're in the process of rebuilding and recreating the Fenor legacy across a lot of platforms, including eyewear, as well as reels. Excellent. I'm looking forward to seeing that at ICAST then. So obviously it's going to be impossible for us to touch on all the iconic brands in the pure fishing holdings. Because I mean, we're talking about Penn, Abu Garcia, Berkeley, Shakespeare, Fluger, Fenwick, and so on. And all of these companies aren't just iconic because of the great products they've provided, some, as you mentioned, for more than 100 years, but because they've also etched their influence into the history of recreational angling and also into Americana. I mean, how do you not hear words like Fluger, Fenwick, Penn, Hardy, and so on without the power of nostalgia just echoing in those names? So how do you think through maintaining the loyalty to those classic historical brand names while pushing this dynamic company forward? That's a, that's a good question. Um, it, you know, and it's, it's a challenge every day. And I think what we do, you know, Pure Fishing was owned by two large multinational conglomerates. And they, we were just one, Pure Fishing was just one company amongst a stable of large, large companies throughout the, the ownership of Newell and then Jarden. As it was taken private by Sycamore Partners uh, in 2019, and Harlan Kent came in as the CEO, I'd actually worked with Harlan. He was on the board of Costa. That's how I knew him. And he recruited me to come in to be president. But our strategy is we're not pure fishing. We're pure fishing. And you and I talk, and I'm the president of pure fishing. But we're brands. We have a brand strategy, and we focus on the brands individually. We try and segment the brands. We don't take the same products and put multiple labels on. We focus on what should Penn represent. As an example, it should represent the best of saltwater fishing reels and fishing rods. Abu Garcia, a legendary brand with going back to the days of the original round reels, which we still make, by the way, all the 4500s, 5500s, 6500s, all still made in Sphinx of Sweden but it's a freshwater brand. It's got a legacy in predator fishing as well as bass fishing. We focus on that. We focus on Fenwick as a specialty rod, as an example, designed for you know, avid anglers, designed to be a middle price point to upper end fishing rod, but we break the brands down and focus on them individually. So really in the end, pure fishing is a, is a collection of, of powerful independent brands. That's what we focus on. That's how we talk to consumers. We don't talk to consumers through the, the, the mouth of pure fish. We talk to them from Fenway, from Abu, from Penn, from Plano, the, the leader in tackle storage. But I mean, it's a legendary brand, but we, we have people that are, that are tasked every day to develop products for these brands, develop a marketing strategy, a marketing communication strategy for individual brands. And we have to focus on those. And, and consumers love brands. I think particularly now, my opinion is that with all these new reactivated and new anglers, you know, people, the American consumers like brands. They want to find brands that stand for something, performance, quality, you know, conservation, brands that do the right thing. But so we want to have that brand story and let people discover our brands and then engage with us and we'll help them locate the products that best meet their needs for fishing. But very, very focused on a brand specific strategy across our entire portfolio portfolio. I I think you probably just answered what I, but I want to ask a a kind of odd adjacent question then specifically about Penn, because here's a company that really saw its initial success 
attributed to the economic situation of the Great Depression, when in 1933, the first pinreels were sold to the Miller Auto Supply Company in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And the reels started selling because a lot of families were forced into subsistence fishing during the Great Depression. So a lot of pen success grew from a need for families to acquire food. And I love the fact that the first pen reel, the Model F, was specifically designed for surf casting. So there's a powerful link between the economic situation of the Great Depression and the rise in the popularity of surf fishing. And I don't want to create a homology between the situation of the Great Depression and the situation we find ourselves in now post-pandemic. But as the president of Pure Fishing, how do you embrace that kind of just powerful history, not just of Penn, but you know, pretty much every brand in the Pure Fishing catalog? Well, I think we'll focus on Penn specifically there. I think that, you know, our goal with Penn is at any price point that we make products in, we want to offer performance, quality, and value. If you're a new angler last year in your coastal community, and you're going to walk into your local tackle shop and buy that first pre-mounted combo because you're going down to the pier with your son next Saturday to, to have a fishing experience, we want to give you a great product. If you're a serious offshore fisherman, you know, trolling for big game in Costa Rica, Panama, Mexico, the Bahamas, we want to build great products in our internationals and torques, which we make still to this day. We make a number of reels, over 50 different models of reels in Philadelphia in a plant that's over 90 years old. We want to offer that level of performance to the customers looking for it. So we try and have a broad, with Penn, we have a broad offering of products at multiple price points. You can get started as a very casual saltwater angler with Penn, spending less than $100 for a rod and reel. And as you become more serious and more avid and grow, the Penn brand grows with you, offering you different price points, different feature sets that'll keep you engaged in the brand. So we, we like to offer a broad spectrum. Penn should be, shouldn't be your second or third purchase. It should be, we wanna build a product that you can walk into your local tackle shop and find the product that you need that will perform at a price you wanna pay for it. And I think that Penn's story was, your, the legacy of Penn was building a value-based product to meet the needs of everyday anglers. And I think that's still part of our strategy. Yeah, absolutely. I know my grandfather was very pen dedicated uh, that, you know, he he grew up with them and that was what he fished. You know, and thinking about those great histories and those legacies of pure fishing brands, Fluger would have to be right there with that same kind of American heritage going back to 1880 in Akron, Ohio. I always found it interesting that Fluger carries the reputation of being a company that makes great reels. But the company really got its start making lures, and Ernest Fluger had more than 50 inventions that changed the lure manufacturing industry, including being the first company to use phosphoric paint on lures to give them more visual range and a kind of glow. Yet now the Fluger catalog doesn't include a single lure or a hook, and for a while, Fluger was the largest manufacturer of hooks in the world. But the Fluger Summit and the Akron casting reels really pushed the company forward. I'm sorry, I get all geeky about these kinds of histories in the industry. But you know, look, kind of my just... first job was selling Fluger, the first rod and reel line I represented as a manufacturer sales rep when I was very young, just out of school, was Fluger. It was owned at that time by the Shakespeare Company, and Shakespeare owned Fluger and uh, Shakespeare, and I represented the, the Fluger brand in the upper Midwest, so I've got a long history with them. It's a fantastic brand with, as you've already mentioned, a, a long and storied history. It's got to be great working with all these brands' names. All right, let's set history aside and let's talk about some product for a second. So Berkeley introduced Gulp long before you stepped into your role with Pure Fishing, but we have to admit that Gulp really changed the game in artificials. As a cornerstone of Pure Fishing's brands, how has Gulp changed how Pure Fishing thinks about the artificial market? You know, I think we look at the artificial market and think that, you know, for a lot of reasons, artificial products, particularly soft plastic, that are easy to use and catch fish meet the needs of today's anglers. You know, it's often difficult. Look at kayak fishing. You can bring a, hopefully it's a, it's a Fraybill flow troll minnow bucket with you on your kayak and bring live bait. We own Fraybill, so it's a shameless plug. But the ability to not, to have product that performs 
in a similar manner to live bait that's easier to transport, easier to store, easier to fish with. One of the things I think in general that, that we look at about making fishing easy really is part of the golf strategy is with a lot of new and anglers coming to this sport, you know, we can make it too complicated. They need a, you need a product like a gulp or a power bait that, hey, you can get a popping cork, you can get a shrimp, you can get a jig head, put it on there, start to fish it. And without being a, you know, Bassmaster elite level angler, enjoy success. So you stay engaged in the sport. So we look at gulp as a product that fishes like live bait, makes it easier to catch fish and creates a better experience on the water and meets the needs of today's anglers because it's easy to easy to transport, easy to carry with you, easy to store. No, it's just a great product. It, it really has changed fishing. Same kind of question about spider wire, which also had a big effect. How did spider wire impact the way we think about and use fishing line? You know, it changed it completely. I mean, you remember when it came out, as I do, it, you know, we had to first learn what braided lines were, and we had to learn to be very careful because the original stuff was pretty coarse and abrasive and could, you know, put some nasty cuts on your hands. But again, the strength, the small diameter, the lack of stretch, I mean, it's, it's improved bottom fishing. It's improved capacity of reels. I think one of the things that spider wire being the first is clearly now as you look at braid, we're now all fishing smaller reels. Uh, the growth in small re smaller reels with more drag is directly the result is you don't need a 6,000 size reel to fish 50 pound line if you're fishing 50 pound braid because the diameter 20. So I think it, it's created, you know, new eras of sensitivity, strength, uh, makes it easier to drop, you know, fish deep with because there's less drag, the line goes down faster, straighter. Uh, braided lines today are, you know, really, I think it's that's been one of one of the one of the biggest innovations in fishing. We're actually just introduced a new uh, spider wire braid this year called Dura Braid, which to our, our test shows the most uh, abrasion resistant braid manufactured by anybody, including our competitors. And so we're going to continue to try and innovate with spider wire. But certainly, braided fishing has changed the types of reels, the types of rods, the types of fishing we do across fresh and salt. Excellent. Yeah, that's great stuff. All right, let's shift and talk about policy for a minute. And I think we can agree that of the 46 million plus registered anglers in the U.S., most don't pay attention to the policies that affect their fishing lives, both locally and federally. You've clearly made recreational fishing policy central to your professional efforts, both through the companies you've worked with and through your advocacy with organizations like ASA. I want to ask you why you got interested in policy. I got interested in it because uh, first of all, I'm interested in politics anyway. I've, I've, and the, I was became, a tr you know, concerned and interested in the politics of fishing. And that is, you know, how could we have, you know, the largest participant sport in the United States generating billions of dollars in economic growth and revenue, paying, you know, tens of millions of dollars in taxes being paid, hundreds of thousands of jobs supported, and yet every policy decision that appeared to be coming out of Washington, D.C., in terms of federal fisheries management, seemed to completely ignore the recreational angling community and seemed to favor commercial fishing. And I have no issue with commercial fishing. It's an American job, so I support it. However, the economic drivers of, of rec fishing are far greater than economic drivers in the U.S. of commercial fishing, yet the allocations of fish, the, the, uh, the seasonality, the bag limits, et cetera, clearly were not benefiting recreational angling. So I was attracted to do that, partly because uh, it was good business when you're working in the fishing tackle industry to make sure that your customers can have an enjoyable day on the water and catch some fish. The other thing is it just from a, just a standpoint of it makes my personal interest in fishing. I want fishing opportunities for myself, for my kids, and for my grandkids. And that won't happen unless we make sure that we that rec the recreational fishing community has a seat at the table when policy is being made. 
you serve as chairman of the Government Affairs Committee for the American Sport Fishing Association. And we've seen a lot of complex policy issues unfold over the last several years. The Modernizing Recreational Fishing Act, the debacle over Red Snapper in the Gulf of Mexico, the Forage Fish Act, matters of invasive species, California drift nets, abandoned mining lands, policies regarding ethanol, Pacific salmon, pebble mine, Bristol Bay plastics, um, stripers, and so on. So from your experience, what are the policy issues that American anglers should be most attentive to right now? I look at fisheries management in both fresh and salt, although a lot of the federal issues deal certainly more with the oceans and salt water uh, than they do with fresh water. But I look at it as under the umbrella of access, and that's access to fish, access to boat ramps, access to parking at boat ramps, uh, access to sustainable fisheries, clean water. I think everything in policy rolls up in one form or another under the issue of access. And I just think that that's, if you're going to focus, you focus there. I mean, and that encompasses everything from building artificial reefs to attract more fish. So you have more access to, in, in terms of productive places to fish, you know, certainly with all the new boats being sold and the fact that people have rediscovered fishing and gotten outside again, you know, one of the challenges we have in many states like Florida, where I live is making sure that we have adequate number of boat ramps and at those boat ramps, adequate amounts of par parking for trucks and trailers. So I look at access as the overarching issue. There's some new ones coming up that I, I don't know if I'm concerned yet or not, but certainly you're seeing just permitting on both coasts in large swaths of the ocean for offshore wind productions, solar wind production to generate electricity. We don't yet know the effects that those huge electric fields are gonna have running, you know, electric current under miles of cable are gonna have on the fish. Can we fish there? Will these, will these become productive fisheries uh, similar to oil platforms in the Gulf? Or will they be places where recreational anglers are kept out? There's a lot of things to be decided on the wind power. Uh, there's a lot of things to still be determined on, you know, red snapper. And the, the big thing is we make, we being the, the, the federal government, which it's our government, they make policy decisions every day. And they, the one clear thing they never know is they don't know how many fish there are. A, you know, fish accurate stock assessments and accurate counts of fish. How do you determine that there can only be a two-day recreational season for red snapper in the South Atlantic when no one knows how many fish there are? The anecdotal evidence that shows that the abundance in red snapper is maybe at the highest level it's ever been. And then you have a two-day season because how do you get that data collected, counted, scientifically verified, verified rather, and then make sound decisions based on facts rather than algorithms? So I think that inability to, to, to count fish, to do accurate stock assessments is a huge issue across all fisheries. And I want to use that to tie into uh, another question here. You've spoken publicly a lot about the relationship between conservation and recreational fishing, and clearly that commitment has manifest through your leadership roles. How will pure fishing address conservation moving forward? We work with a number and support a number of nonprofits uh, that, you know, in groups that focus on fishing. We work with Center for Sport Fishing Policy. We work with the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation. We work with the American Sport Fishing Association uh, on policy in Washington. Uh, we work with groups that tag and count fish. We're uh, charter supporters and uh, members of Gray Fish Tag Research, which is uh, putting out thousands of tags used in all over the Western Hemisphere, California, Mexico, Costa Rica, Florida, the Northeast. And we're doing a lot of satellite tagging with them. Let's be going down in August. Nobody in the Western Hemisphere has ever put a sat tag into a black marlin. So we're going to go to Costa Rica and attempt to, to put a satellite tag into black marlin because we have zero idea of where they go, how far they swim, where do they reproduce. So we want to work on, we're going to approach conservation. What's good for pure fishing is good for fishermen. So what we want to do is is be impactful in areas that benefit ultimately our consumers. We want to, we certainly support clean ocean, 
clean, you know, clean water. But we're going to focus. This is no surprise based on what I said previously. We're about access, access to fish, access to opportunities to go fishing. And uh, that's where our focus will be. And we'll partner with the appropriate uh, uh, people along the way and the appropriate organizations. I've listed some of them that we enjoy working with. Really hope you uh, bring a film crew to document that black marlin expedition. That sounds fantastic, and it'll be important when that data comes in. So, new Fenor sunglasses aside, what are some of the next big efforts and new gear coming out from pure fishing brands that you're particularly excited about? You know, without um, without you know revealing too much too early, I can tell you that we've got a, a fantastic new spinning reel coming from Penn. The model will be named The Authority. We'll introduce it at ICAST. We're very, very excited about it. Um, you know, it's it's a it's going to be a reel that I think at regardless of price point, and it's going to be the most expensive spinning reel we've ever built for Penn, but it's going to be a product that's built to last a lifetime. It, it's been, it was in design when I came here in 2019, and it's taken us this long to get it to market, but it's very, very excited about that. Very excited about not only the new Finor um, inshore spinning reels, but we are bringing out a line of technical inshore rods to go with those under the Finor brand name. Again, for the first time, we'll introduce those in, uh, at ICAST in July in Orlando. Uh, very excited to continue the expansion of Powerbait, Powerbait Maxent, and expanded gulp offerings from Berkeley, as well as to continue to innovate and lead with some new introductions uh, in, in SpiderWire. So we're, you know, when you get to us, we're focused on having new product introductions across all of our major brands, uh, you know, and they'll be different. We'll look to, at the same time, we want to build this incredible spinning reel that I want to fish with, or you want to fish with from the Penn brand. We're also going to bring out, you know, new combos under the Shakespeare brands to address the needs of entry-level fishermen, build them a product, again, that's easy to use, quality, durable, affordable, and catches fish. So we're not going to just focus on one end of the price spectrum, but we'll focus on bringing out innovation uh, across all our platforms and all our brands. And that's, that is, I think, from 2019, 2018, when uh, Harlan Kent came to Pure Fishing uh, as part of the Sycamore Partners Ownership Group, the focus has been on innovation. And we're, we have the scale and the resources that allow us to focus on across multiple brands. And we are, we are a foot to the gas on innovation. Cost, you know, fishermen, they're like anything. They want to see what's new. You know, a retailer's best customer is not the guy or woman who walks through the front door and says, what do you got on sale? It's your best customer is the person who walks to the front door and says, what's new? What do you got today that I didn't, when I was in here last week, you didn't have. So new is drives this industry. Innovation drives this, in, this industry. And it certainly drives pure fishing. You got me jazzed for ICAST more than I usually am. I'm looking forward you know, to that new product uh, showcase uh, Tuesday I'm going to plug it. You know, it's ICAST yeah. is, you know, it was last year. It was great to be back. I think this year you can see more manufacturers back. You know, you're going to see the international component from Canada and Asia that couldn't attend last year. It's going to be a dynamic, terrific show. I can't wait to get there. Me too. It's really one of my favorite times of the year. So you mentioned Shakespeare. And before I get to our traditional wrap-up question, I got a quick little story for you, Dave. So I was invited to speak at the Shakespeare of America Association meeting. Although I really don't know much about Shakespeare's writing, but as chair of a department of English at UF, I suppose they thought I might have something to say about the bard. However, what I pointed out to my audience was that I had misunderstood the invitation that I thought that they had invited me to talk about Shakespeare rods and reels. <laughs> um, I distributed stickers with the Shakespeare logo and the since 1897 tagline and explained to them that they really had the wrong date from the Renaissance for Shakespeare. So I did a little promotion for Shakespeare rods and reels at the Shakespeare Association of America conference. And so as president of Pure Fishing, I just wanted to let you know I'm doing my part, man. I appreciate that. <laughs> It's a great story. All right. So with that, let me get to our usual wrap-up question and ask you, with all of your fishing experience, with all that you do in the industry, what is your grail fish? What's the fish that's still out there on your bucket list that you really want to catch? Boy, there's, 
so many fish, so little time, you know? I would, I can tell you that from a purely, I want to catch a spearfish because I've caught every species of billfish in the world other than a spearfish. Just from a sense of accomplishment, I'd like to do that just for me. Uh, other than that, as I've been spending some time, uh, spending the, some time in the Montana learning to fly fish, which I am beyond a novice. If you, if you can be below a novice, I'm still there. But I see these guys catching some beautiful, larger uh, cutthroats and browns in some of the rivers in Montana. I'd certainly like to catch up, you know, a, the kind of brown trout or the kind of cutthroat that you'd like to put on the wall because the fish I catch right now are pretty small. But, you know, in the end, I got to tell you, I like to go fishing. I'm into what's biting. And, you know, I, I'm glad to say that even after fishing for more than 50 years that I get excited every time the rod bends. And, you know, sometimes a lot of times you fish with me, it's usually a sail cat. But if it's not, I'm excited. But, you know, spearfish and, you know, obviously a trophy, uh, some trophy trout from some of those beautiful streams in the West are high on my bucket list. What a fantastic answer. You can just hear the epic trout stream call in. Dave, I can't thank you enough for the conversation today. And I want to thank you, too, for all of the incredible work you've done over the years to advocate for all anglers in this country. I look forward to working with you through ASA committees. And I, for one, am also enthused by the possibility of what pure fishing brands will become under your leadership and have been grateful for the equipment and tackle that those brands have played in my life as an angler. Dave, thanks so much for being on the Rodcast. Oh, thank you very much for having me. And just let me say one thing. I've been very lucky to work for companies like Pure Fishing and like Costa that provided me the opportunity to engage in some of the policy and government affairs issues that I've been able to focus upon. So I'm grateful to the companies I work with along the way as well. And thanks for having me. Oh, gladly. I've been wanting to have this conversation for a while. So take care, everybody. And thanks, Dave Boltice. All right, it is time for this week's bourbon break because let's face it, we all need a break and what a better way to take a break than with some bourbon. This week, I want to take a look at Penhook's Bohemian Bourbon High Proof. What a great name for a whiskey company, by the way, particularly for a company that works in those old Kentucky traditions of bourbon making. But the term Penhook actually has deeper roots in Kentucky horse racing traditions and tobacco farming traditions. You see, penhooking was a term used in Kentucky tobacco farming when a tobacco speculator would be at a tobacco market and would identify a farmer's plants as being the plants he wanted to invest in. So he'd pen a note to the plants identifying his desire to buy the young plants, usually before they actually went to market, allowing the speculator to buy low and resell the plants at a profit on the market. Market. Now, the term got picked up in the Kentucky horse racing industry and is used to identify someone who buys yearling horses either privately or at auction, oversees their training, and then sells them as race-ready two-year-olds. And yeah, let me give credit where credit is due. I didn't know this until I read about penhooking on the Bradley Thoroughbreds webpages. So Penhook Whiskies dedicates their batches to thoroughbreds that have the potential to become great two-year-old racers. So Penhook whiskeys are coming out of deep Kentucky traditions of bourbon and horse racing. Now, according to the Penhook web pages, each year Penhook releases a new vintage of bourbons and rise. Every expression is the best representation of our barrels, they say, at the moment in time and dedication to a promising young thoroughbred. Through a combination of careful barrel selection, blending in small batches, and meticulous proofing, each penhook vintage has a personality as unique as the horse on the label. So yeah, each bottle has a different racehorse on the label. Very cool looking label, by the way. I will say that one of the things that attracted me to this bottle beyond the emerging reputation of penhook is that you can download an augmented reality app that lets you use it with your mobile device for an interactive experience with the bottle. Now, for those of you who don't know this, in my role as a professor at the University of Florida, I direct the Trace Innovation Initiative where we do a lot of work work with augmented reality. So I was really taken up by the fact that here's this great bourbon company is using AR on their bourbon bottles. And I should point out too, 
that even without the high-tech interface, the penhook bottle is very elegant, very pretty on the shelf. This isn't, an, isn't a bottle that suggests the raucous drinking of a derby, but the high-class elegance of thoroughbred horses. It looks more like a fine wine bottle than a bourbon bottle, though. Now, according to Penhook, rather than attending to the traditions of trying to develop and maintain a consistent flavor profile and proof from each batch to batch, Penhook, and I'm quoting here, sees each set of barrels as a new crop, shaped by the natural variations in the ingredients and the elements. Working in small batches, we craft each vintage to express the best whiskey rather than the same whiskey and set the proof to optimize the attributes of that year's crop. So Penhook has six series of bourbons. The bottle I'm tasting from is the inaugural Kentucky High Proof Bourbon Series, and it's dedicated to Bohemian bourbon, a chestnut filly. Interestingly, for a horse to qualify as a chestnut, it has to have absolutely no black hairs, as the chestnuts are reddish-brown color. Chestnut is one of the most common colors for horses of any breed. So this is a 114 and a half proof bourbon that according to Penhook is the first bourbon in half a century to be distilled, aged, and bottled at the legendary Old Taylor Distillery, which is now named Castle and Key. It is Penhook's inaugural bourbon crafted from its custom Kentucky distillate. Prior to sourcing it from Castle and Key, Penhook had relied on MGP, which is based in Atchison, Kansas, and Lawrenceburg, Indiana. MGP makes a lot of the spirits you'd know, but I'm most grateful for their production of Everclear, which will always remind me of high school basketball games and the smell of grape Kool-Aid mixed with vomit on the beach. Thanks, MGP, for those memories and the inability to remember good chunks of the early 1980s. So Penhook, this is a limited release with only 100 barrels made. It is identified as having been aged for more than 34 months and was blended and proofed by Sean Josephs, Penhook's co-founder and master taster. It's got a mash bill of 75% corn, 15% rye, and 10% malted barley. I really wanted to be able to describe the color of the Bohemian bourbon as chestnut, but it's a bit lighter than a traditional chestnut horsehair color, despite having tints of reddish-brown. It's not, however, so light as to be described as hay. So out of deference to this filly, I'm going to say that the coloration is a light but rich chestnut. I love the nose of this bourbon. It scents distinct, throwing out tones of corn for certain, but with strong signifiers of vanilla, caramel, spice, and the oak barrels. Given the high proof, I was actually intrigued by how much you don't get a high alcohol burn in the nose. The sweet dominates where I had assumed the alcohol would, and so the nose interested me in how the flavor might subdue the alcohol. And let me just say, it didn't. This is a high proof, and it tastes like a high proof. It burns like a high proof, but that's not necessarily a negative. But you need to know that smooth is not a descriptor here. The heat of the alcohol dominates, and I think it's also it also accentuates the greenness, the newness of a bourbon that has aged for less than three years. Keep in mind that Penhook identifies the age as more than 34 months, but it can't be much more than those 34 months given the greenness and the taste. The sweetness that dominates the nose is still there, but it's on fire in an alcohol burn. The balance shifts the heat, and really, though, throughout the taste spectrum, that's the dominant flavor, burn. And at the end of the palate, there's a bit of the oak, but it's a greener oak flavor, not a rich, charred, old oak taste. Look, I get what Penhook is trying to do here to create a unique, unique approach to their brands, not wanting to try to make each batch and uh, the last and even exactly like the last and even the move from outsourcing from MGP to Castle and Key makes sense. But I think they rush this batch a bit. The green oak taste at the end of this taste experience leaves me wishing that Penhook had let the whiskey sit in the oak for about twice as long and maybe charred up those barrels just a bit more to move the flavor from green to smoke from the yearling to the race ready bourbon. And at $50 a bottle, I wish they hadn't put this one on the track quite yet. And so those are my thoughts about Penhook Bohemian Bourbon High Proof. And as a final note in my regular disclaimer, as always, please keep in mind that the Fishing Professor Bourbon Break reviews are not sponsored. The distillers have not sent me samples, nor do they influence my reviews at all, though I am always open to sponsorship, bribery, and extortion. The bourbons I review are purchased out of pocket, and my reviews are based on my keen sense of bourbon know-how developed over many years in many of this country's finest watering holes, drinking establishments, dives, pubs, honky-tonks, and back-alley speakeasies. Hey, speaking of, let me give a quick shout-out to the long-closed-and-gone 
King Arthur's in Norfolk, Virginia, serving underage drinkers since the early 1980s. Thanks for the warm beers and crappy cover bands. And yes, here's to those who wish us well, all the rest can go to hell. As always, if you've got a comment about this week's bourbon break, feel free to email me at sid at inventifishing.com or use the comment section on any of the platforms through which you're accessing the Rodcast. Let's get back to that Rodcast. Okay, it is time for this week's top 10 from The Fishing Professor. And this week, I want to take a look at my top 10 grouper lures for both digging and jigging for grouper. All right, at number 10, let's kick this off with Nomad Designs DTX Minnow. This is a great hard bait trolling lure that gets down to the grouper. It's got an oversized clear bill that really pushes the lure down. It's also got great wiggle and vibration, but it runs true in a straight line. Hey, be sure when you're picking them out to pick out the model that runs to the depth you need. The DTX 220 LRS dives to 50 feet, the DTX 200 dives to 40 feet, and the DTX 140 and DTX 165 will dive to 30 feet. One of the things that I like about these lures too is that while many anglers troll them fast, like around 10 to 14 knots for wahoo and tuna, they can be slow trolled like four to six knots and still get down deep to the grouper. I find that you need to slow down a bit when you're digging for grouper. Okay, at number nine, I've got Yozuri's 3D Magnum Deep Diver. This is a durable lure with a large beak that runs deep. If it's got a it's got a wide wobble that is a great grouper attractor. It works best at four to nine knots, so it's good for slow trolling and for getting down to grouper. The one drawback to the 3D Magnum Diver is that it only comes in one size and it dives 20 to 25 feet. So if you're targeting grouper deeper than 25 feet, you're going to want to go to another deep diver. But if you're hitting nearshore reefs and wrecks in about 20 to 30 feet, the Ozuri uh, number D Magnum Deep Diver is a great lure. It's available, by the way, in eight high-vis colors. Add number eight. I'm going to step away from the hard plastic diving lures for a second and go to a soft body lure with Bass Assassin Saltwater Sea Shad. And here I'm focusing specifically on the six and seven inch models. I like dropping this big soft body down on wrecks and reefs with a weighted jig head. This allows me to adjust the weight of the head to the conditions to account for the speed of the drop and the things like current. Um, but it's the movement of the Bass Assassin Sea Shad that really makes them great for grouper. They come in about 10 color options, so you've got a choice in what you want in terms of color presentation. This is a great lure for deep drops and shallow drops. At number seven, we've got Rapala's Shadow Rap Shad Shallow Trolling Lure. Now, as soon as you hear the name, I know a lot of you are thinking, how can a shallow trolling lure be right for grouper, which we tend to troll for in deeper water? The shadow wrap tro shallow trolling lure runs at depths of only about three or four feet. But that's the depth I like to run the lure when I'm trolling for strawberry grouper or other nearshore grouper when they hole up in the shallow rocks and holes. In fact, I've used the shadow wrap shad shallow trolling lure slow trolling across the limestone holes along the flats outside of Crystal River and along the flats of the lower keys and picked up a lot of grouper that way. It's available in 26 colors, but I have to say that my favorites for inshore grouper are the clown, the ghost shiner, and the imposter patterns. Okay, at number six, let's go with one of the most versatile lures out there, not just for grouper, but for king mackerel, dolphin, wahoo, and tuna, as well as a ton of other fish. And I'm talking about the Huntington Stainless Steel Drone Spoon. The Huntington Drone Spoon is one of the most tried and true lures out there. They've been used for over 100 years first appearing on the market in 1918. Now for grouper fishing, you'll want to pair the drone spoon with a planer, and the size planer you use will depend be dependent on the depths you're fishing. And for a lot of grouper fishing, that means a number four, five, or six planer to get down to the depths of 30 or 40 feet. For the Huntington drone spoons too, I like to fish them in the one to four size range. Keep in mind that those are not inches, but the spoon size. So for example, say, the size two and a half drone spoon is four and three and quarters inches. 
I don't like to go over the size four, which is six and a quarter inch spoon or smaller than a size one, which is a three and a quarter inch spoon. All in all, though, the Huntington drone spoon is a reliable lure for grouper and for so many other target species. Sitting at number five, I'm going to go generic, and I'm going to tag the white bucktail as a top-notch jigging lure for grouper. Yeah, I know, a lot of grouper anglers like to add a little color to their bucktails, like a flare of red or a chartreuse grub tail edition. But when it comes down to it, the classic white bucktail is a fundamental grouper jig. Okay, at number four, I'm going to come back to Yozuri in their Crystal 3D Minnow Deep Diving Trolling Lure. This is another great slow trolling lure, making it ideal for grouper. It trolls ideally at the speed of 3 to 6 knots, maintaining a great wobble action and also a really tight straight troll line. The oversized clear beak gets the lure down. It comes in a 5 and a quarter version that weighs 7 eighths of an ounce and a 6 inch version that weighs 1 and 3 eighths ounces. Keep in mind, though, that even though Yozuri calls this lure a deep diver, its diving range really is between 10 and 20 feet. One of the great features of this lure is its visibility. It's got an internal 3D prism finish. Also, there's a jointed version that adds some extra wiggle to the action that's worth using for grouper, too. Okay, <clears throat> at number three... I've got the live target penfish. Now, this isn't a trolling lure or even a jigging lure per se, but anyone who has dropped a live penfish down on a wreck or a reef knows that they are grouper candy. The live target penfish swim bait is one of the best penfish imitators out there, and I find it very effective on shallow reefs and wrecks for grouper. It comes in two sizes, a three and a half inch, three quarter ounce version and a four inch one ounce version i prefer the larger of the two when grouper fishing comes in two lifelike color options too i have found too that when dropping the live target pinfish down to deeper reefs and wrecks that rigging it with about 24 inches of leader a barrel swivel and a two ounce or heavy or heavier depending on the current egg sinker will help get the lure down into the water down to the wreck or the reef bouncing and retrieving the sinker then extends the movement and swimming action to the swim bait and the grouper just love that action. Part of why I like the live tar target pinfish swim bait too is the heavy-duty inline hook it comes rigged with. Okay, in the runner-up position, we turn to a classic, reliable, resilient, top-performing lure, and that's Man's Stretch Series Diving Plugs. These are some great big-build, straight-running lures that have earned their respect as a top grouper lure, not to mention all the other game fish they attract. Man Stretch Series diving plugs run at a varying depths depending on the model. The 15 plus and 20 plus model runs at depths of 15 to 25 feet, while the 30 plus runs at 30 and the 40 plus runs down to 40 feet. Thus, pick your model in accordance with the depth of the area you're going to be fishing. One of the things I like about this lure too is that the 40 plus models are pre-rigged with a double hook at the tail and on the belly instead of using the treble hook. The other models though are rigged with the trebles. All in all, man, stretch series diving plugs are some of the best lures out there when you're digging for grouper. Okay, that brings us to my favorite grouper lure, and it's a classic, and I'm guessing most of you playing at home have already figured out what it is just because you're super awesome, and there's no way to have a list of top grouper lures without this lure, and since I haven't said it yet, you've probably deduced it, but before I reveal the obvious, let's have a quick recap of the top nine grouper lures in the Fishing Professor's Grouper Arsenal. At number 10, Nomad Designs DTX Minnow. At number 9, Yozuri's 3D Magnum Deep Diver. At number 8, Bass Assassins Saltwater Sea Shad. Actually, that would probably be Saltwater Assassins Saltwater Sea Shad. At number 7, Rappel's Shadow Wrap Shad Shallow Trolling Lure. At number 6, Huntington Stainless Steel Drone Spoon. At number 5, White Bucktails. And hey, just a hint, maybe tip them with squid or strip bait too. At number four, Yozuri's Crystal 3D Minnow Deep Diving Trolling Lure. At three, Live Target's Penfish Swim Bait. At number two, in the runner-up position, Man Stretch Series Diving Plugs. And that leaves us with the number one grouper lure, according to yours truly, the fishing professor, the Rapala X-Rap Magnum Trolling Lure, particularly the X-Rap Magnum 20 or 30. When you are digging for grouper, the X-Rap Magnum is just simply a reliable lure to go to. The Rapala X-Rap Magnum runs straight with a great wobble action, and when trolled at speeds between 5 to 7 knots, sort of the ideal trolling speed for grouper, the X-Rap Magnum gets down and holds its depth really well. And when run at these slow troll speeds over a wreck or a reef, 
The lure just pulls the grouper up to the bite. The X-Wrap Magnum comes in five sizes, and keep in mind that when you select X-Wrap Magnum sizes, the name of the size identifies the depth the lure runs at. So the XR Mag 10 runs to 10 feet, the XR Mag 15 to 15 feet, and so on up to the XR Mag 40. I like the 30s and 40s when slow trolling for grouper, unless I'm running in 20 or 30 feet of water, then the 15 to 30 models are ideal. The sleek body is available in two dozen color patterns, and the textured translucent body, internal holographic foil, 3D holographic eyes all add up to make the Rapala X-Rap Magnum hands down the best grouper lure out there and certainly my top choice for grouper lures. So that X-Wraps up the top 10 for this week. As always, if you've got comments about the top 10, want to recommend another grouper lure for me to try or have other comments, feel free to email me at sid at inventafishing.com. And as always, if you'd like a fishing professor's top 10 about a particular fishing-related thing, then just send me an email and I'll see about adding it to my list for future top 10s. As always, please remember that my lists are not sponsor-influenced, but are strictly the opinion of me. So that's the end of another Inventive Fishing, Fishing Professor Top 10. Be safe out there and be sure to practice safe fishing and X-Wrap your junk. Oh, well, that brings us to the depressing moment of the broadcast where we have to say goodbye. But like one of my favorite authors, Dr. Seuss, so gracefully said, don't cry because it's over, smile because it happened. He also said, oh, the sea is full of a number of fish. If a fellow is patient, he might get his wish. I want to thank Dave Boltice, president of Pure Fishing, for that great conversation today and for all of the insight into the great companies housed within the Pure Fishing kingdom. There is a reason Pure Fishing leads the world in fishing tackle, and that's because of all of the fantastic and iconic brands and the people who work there, too, that fall within the Pure Fishing umbrella. I also hope my grouper lure countdown will be of some use to you grouper anglers looking to do some digging. Uh, before I sign off today, I do have a message for our brothers and sisters out there behind the line. The hook is barbed. I say again, the hook is barbed. Hey, Dr. Seuss also said today was good, today was fun, tomorrow is another one. And while he's right, he's only slightly off, and another one won't be here tomorrow, but it will be here next Wednesday because new episodes of the broadcast appear every Wednesday. So be sure to mark your calendars and subscribe so you never miss an episode. As always, please be sure to share the broadcast with everyone you know. The more people that subscribe and listen to the broadcast means that more people are listening and subscribing to the broadcast. And of course, if you have comments or questions about anything on this week's show or have recommendations for future top 10s, bourbon breaks interviews, or information about specific fishing-related issues, please feel free to email me at sid at inventivefishing.com or leave a reply in any of the comment sections for any of the podcast platforms you use to listen to the broadcast. Be sure to follow Inventive Fishing on Twitter, Instagram, and friend us on Facebook at Inventive Fishing. And be sure to check out all of the great video content over on Inventive Fishing YouTube, Inventive Fishing's YouTube channel, which includes great gear reviews, new product introductions, and a mess of other golden content. I will be back next week with another episode. And until then, this is Sid Dobrin, the fishing professor. Fish on. <laughs>The Fishing Professor Show is copyrighted by Inventive Fishing, LLC. Any rebroadcast of the podcast without the consent from Inventive Fishing, LLC is strictly prohibited. Fish on!